You are listening to a Wavel Room podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go for your podcasts. But if that's not enough for you, head to wavelroom.com where you can read our articles. You can follow us on social media where you can come and join us at one of our live events. Hello and welcome to this Wavel Room podcast recorded in partnership with the British Army's Education Branch. This podcast features Paul Barnes, an Army Warrant Officer and Fellow of the Royal United Services Institute. Paul's talk is titled Fighting in the Grey Zone, Future War or Fallacy. This talk was organised by the Army's Education Branch as part of their Learning Lunch series. It was recorded in Andover on the 23rd of January 2020. Enjoy. Uh, we're going to talk about fighting in the grey zone, future war or fallacy today. Uh, the presentation is not going to arrive on screen, so I'm going to largely uh, read it for you. Uh, as an introduction, we're really going to look at four questions today. So first of all, what is the grey zone? What's its historical context? And why has it become a problem for Western militaries in the early part of the 21st century? What is presentism and why does it represent a threat both to strategy and military concepts? Uh, what do we know about the changing nature or character of war? And what does that mean for future war and warfare? And in light of these questions, what should the West, this is from a warrant officer in the British Army, what should the West and militaries, uh, what, what should our role be in the grey zone? Okay, so as a definition, the first definition I'm going to use is the RAND definition of January 2019, which is the grey zone is an operational space between peace and war, involving coercive actions to change the status quo below a threshold that, in most cases, would prompt a conventional military response, often by blurring the line between military and non-military actions and the, and the attribution for events. There's an enormous uh, definition full of gobbledygook. What, in actual fact, what, in actual fact, the problem there is, is that Rand have conflated the operational space, that is, the gap between peace and war, with operational techniques. So they've just thrown it all together into one definition. Uh, and I'm going to show that I think that's probably erroneous. Quite simply, the grey zone is an operational space between peace and war, full stop. So the grey zone is not new. The first thing we need to think about this, it's been with us as long as war. Uh, what changes over time is the space, is the size of the grey zone, if you like. I'll give you some examples. So we have uh, perhaps the largest grey zone in military history, the Cold War, 1947 to 1989, uh, a large grey zone between war and peace, where in between people were doing all kinds of activities, which might be considered at different times to have been war. Why do I say at different times? If we look at the British activity on the northwest frontier between 1839 and 1919 against the Russians, the activity that was going on in that space could have been called grey zone warfare. Uh, it is not, again, new. The area, the problem that we get is that the grey zone does not stay the same width and the same depth. It changes over time. Um, we'll explain, or I'll go on to talk about why. But I'll use three examples from British, uh, British experience over the last two, two and a half hundred years to examine exactly why that is. The first one I'll talk about is the Trent Affair of 1861. Uh, few people have, have heard of this. So in 1861, uh, the Confederacy of America was sending across its ambassadors 
to Great Britain on a ship called the SS Trent. It was captured by the United States Navy in international waters, and immediately Britain dispatched 3,500 troops to Canada because this activity was deemed, the, the capturing of ambassadors, not even your own ambassadors, was deemed to be an act of war and, and resulted in troops going to Canada. America immediately backed down over that, but it was seen as an act of war and we acted upon it. 1850, 11 years earlier, a Gibraltarian merchant, not even British merchant, a Gibraltarian Portuguese merchant called Don Pacifico, uh, who had a, a, a commercial operation in Athens, had his shop uh, attacked by protesters in Athens protesting about internal Greek politics. It was enough for the British Navy to go to war with the Greek Navy over that matter. That was considered enough because at that time that was uh, sufficient. And perhaps the, the most infamous of all the, the British activities, 18. Th uh, sorry, 1739-1749, the War of Jenkins' Ear. When Britain went to war with, uh, with Spain for 10 years uh, because in a fracas on board a merchant ship with the Spanish Navy, uh, the captain, Jenkins, had his ear cut off by mistake by sword, uh, and that was sufficient cause for war in those times. Contrast that, if we do, with uh, Gasser, uh, the, the murder of... British subjects in Salisbury in 2018, and nothing gets done. So, that the grey zone has become, has come to dominate Western military thinking in the last 10 years is simply the somewhat contradictory nexus of successful conventional deterrence, political timidity, denuded homeland resilience, and economic liberalism. On many occasions in the last 300 years, Casus Belli have been relatively trivial, as I think we've shown. In the 18th century, we went to war over the removal of Jenkins' ear. In the 19th, because of the looting of a shopkeeper's house. And yet, the murder of British subjects on British soil by chemical poisoning was considered insufficient cause for war in 2017. Some might argue that the exclusion of military action was a sensible assessment of the military balance of power. But it is hardly the first time that Britain has balked in the face of Russian aggression. Rather, political timidity is the underlying factor, somewhat which, something which the Kremlin and others farther afield are keen to exploit. Paradoxically, our opponents' activities in the grey spates, either virtual or physical, are a reaction to Western conventional superiority. It is fear of the West's military capabilities which causes adversaries, be they state or non-state actors, to seek asymmetric answers to exploit the West's weaknesses, whilst at the same time advantage, uh, taking advantage of their own relative strengths. In this way, by carefully navigating Western indecision and avoiding a conventional military action, the, the West's opponents have outmaneuvered us and forced the West to fight on ground of their enemy's choosing. The gap between war and peace, the gray space, has thus, widened, has thus been widened by a combination of overwhelming Western military strength and a failure of its political will. The lack of will has been exacerbated by reduced Western resilience, both societal and military, and economic austerity following the economic collapse of, 20, uh, of 2008. Society is largely divorced from hardship and increasingly dependent on just-in-time logistics, uh, vulnerable information networks, 
and satellite-enabled precision for everything from food and water to entertainment and sewage cannot be easily taken to war against an adversary well-versed in cyber techniques whose populace is far more robust and less dependent on technology. Furthermore, budgetary limitations since 2008 have uh, disproportionately impacted on government departments like the Ministry of Defence, uh, whose, whose previous default was to throw money at a project until it worked. In the, in the austerity era, the paradigm on which Western military superiority is based, that is, lethal and exquisite platforms able to deliver precision effects, has become so expensive that duplicates and redundancy have become virtually impossible. Indeed, the loss of even a small number of those platforms could be catastrophic. Admiral Jellicoe may have been able to lose the First World War in a morning, but arguably a squadron commander of F-35s could lose it in a moment's inattention. So what are the techniques, the techniques of this grey zone warfare? And again, we're going to show that this is nothing new. If we think about techniques such as sabotage, sabotage is a 19th century event, industrial sabotage, of not working to your hardest efforts, of destroying machines to try and take the labour away. This has existed for 200 years, at least that we know in its modern form. The two most famous events, the Kingsland and the Black Tom uh, sabotage in America, first in 1916, where $20 million uh, US dollars worth of armaments were destroyed on the dots uh, by German agents. And the Kingsland affair, where they destroyed the machinery that was making British military equipment in, uh, in that part of America for export. Uh, so this has been something that's gone on for a very long time. This is not just the invention of the Russians or the Chinese. Espionage, again, espionage is as old as the Bible, uh, as is assassination as old as the Bible. But we look at these today and we see and we often think that these are a new thing which has come about in the last 20 or 30 years. And deception, false flag events. Uh, I would give you probably the most, what should be probably the most famous false flag event which is almost unheard of today. Uh, has everyone heard of uh, Gleiswitz? So Gleiswitz in August 1939, uh, Hitler decided to, uh, to use uh, um, concentration camp people to attack. They didn't attack, they were just trucked out there. A, a German uh, radio station, uh, saying Polish that the Polish state was attacking Germany, and that was the cause of the Second World War. That was initially, that's what, what, why Hitler decided to invade Poland. What Hitler had to say about that was very telling. I will provide a propagandistic uh, casus belli. Its credibility doesn't matter. The victor will not uh, be answerable for whether he told the truth. Uh, there are lots of parallels there with some of the stuff that goes on today. So this is none of it uh, particularly new. So now we're going to look at Presentism. So, in March 2019, I wrote an article for uh, the Modern Warfare Institute at West Point with a particularly snappy title of Neophilia Presentism and Their Deleterious Consequences for uh, Western Military Strategy. I think you'll agree it trips off the tongue. Uh, it's been republished on a number of websites and blogs, including the blog of the United States Navy, and has enjoyed uh, gratifyingly, uh, gratifyingly positive reception. Uh, 
The tide of presentism is inexorable and requires constant challenge. In December 2018, at his annual Rusi Christmas lecture, the Chief of Defence Staff used three interpretations of historical uh, context to justify his vision for future British defence policy. In summary, he stated that we are experiencing an almost unprecedented period of technological advancement, a more dangerous international relations e environment than experienced in living memory, and an era of constant competition between nations without equal in history. An alternative interpretation shared at least by uh, General Mark Milley, the Chairman of the United States Joint Chiefs of Staff, states that such a view risks the conceit of the present. Such a perspective might argue that technological advance is actually at its slowest rate since before the Industrial Revolution. Both the Cold War and the 20th century interbellum offered at least equal challenge in international relations affairs, and there is little new about the constant competition in the modern nation-state system. The opinions of professional heads of armed forces matter. Their worldview is not benign. <clears throat> what they think today will inform the direction of their militaries tomorrow, and by extension, the likelihood of success or failure. But what is the potential threat represented by a mindset of presentism? First, we have to understand the cognitive direction of travel, encouraged by neophiles. In general, presentism privileges belief in novel theories and interpretations, current examples of which are hybrid warfare, cyber warfare, the proliferation of domains of war, and theories of changing nature of war. This belief in the superiority of novelty is often accompanied by a belief in technological determinism, a dependence on science to provide unknown solutions to current problems, just in time. Those who hold such opinions and who occupy positions of authority will quite naturally uh, influence procurement, military concepts, and doctrine to reflect their positions. What I want to do quickly is look at those three questions that we've asked, that technolo technology is advancing at an unprecedented rate, that the world is more dangerous than at any time in living memory, and that we are living in an era of constant competition without equal. So I had a look back, and I thought back to the time of my great-grandfather, my father, and me. And I thought about the first 50 years of our lives. Well, my great-grandfather uh, was born in 1892, and in the first 50 years of his life, just off the top of my head, I came up with the internal combustion engine, jet engine, radio, television, aeroplanes, computing, cars. Uh, also a world in which there was a dreadnought arms race, two world wars, political revolutions, and appeasement. I look at my dad's time, the first 50 years of his life, nuclear fission, the internet, computers and AI, mobile phones, rocket technology, satellites, the Cold War, the end of history, welfare state, and the retreat from empire, all pretty large things. And I looked at my lifetime, the first 50 years of my life, and realized that it is definitely slowing in pace. What we have is we are, we are seeing, instead of huge technological advances, we are seeing changes in format of those earlier, um, those earlier advances. So the question is, is it more dangerous? Well, I would argue that today is nothing like as dangerous as the Cuban Missile Crisis or the period between the two wars. The period particularly between 1936 and 1939 was a significantly uh, more dangerous period than the period we live in. Technology is not advancing at as high a rate, probably a slower rate than it was. 
I leave you all to think about that. The danger represented by a wholesale acceptance of presentist theories of war is not just that they are wrong and waste intellectual output. Further, it's because their practical application can be fatally wasteful in terms of time and resource. Sir Michael Howard, the late British military historian, once said that although it was impossible to predict the future character of war, the trick was not to be far from the mark when, when future war came. Misrepresenting changes in character as changes in nature and misunderstanding the available evidence will act to almost guarantee that the trick is missed. Military presentism has many drivers, but a perhaps cynical view is that they can be usefully distilled into financial and reputational factors. A quote often and mistakenly attributed to Winston Churchill, gentlemen, we have run out of money, now we have to think, illuminates the former of these two categories. In general usage, the quote is interpreted as a positive call for greater innovation and adaptation. But in the search for answers on the cheap, and in an attempt to attract finite uh, financial resources, militaries, industries, and academia often create and amplify new theories, doctrines, and perspectives to negative activity. Arguably, conceptualizations like hybrid warfare are the results of this scramble for budget share. Reputation is important too. Shortly after the Second World War, the influential uh, military philosopher, Sir Basil Littlehart, sought to bolster his reputation as the proto-theorist of Blitzkrieg by influencing former German generals, eager to please and avoid criminal conviction, to provide statements to, the effect, to that effect for his book, The Other Side of the Hill. This attempt was both dishonest and ultimately futile. Historians in the 1990s re-examining the theory and the substance of German operations, as well as the interviews with Little Hart, found that Blitzkrieg was neither based on Little Hart's theories nor even on a coherent doctrine. Sir Basil's case demonstrates the lengths to which theorists will go to preserve or enhance their reputation. The struggle for budgets and reputation is not a matter of harmless semantics and academic sophistry. It endangers military thought and practice. Since the end of the Cold War, there's been the proliferation of new theories aimed at explaining the changing character of war. We've seen the rise and fall of the theory of the revolution of military affairs, witnessed the fervor of the Koinonistas, been seduced by novel ideas of asymmetry, and endured the putative theory of hybrid warfare. In each case, theory was based on the belief that the observable symptoms of warfare were either unavoidably determinist or wholly disconnected from previous experience. In the case of hybrid warfare, disconnected tactics employed asymmetrically by the West's adversaries have been conflated to create an all-encompassing doctrine that flatters the talents of officers like uh, Russian uh, Valery Gerasimov, but which is no more coherent a doctrine than German Blitzkrieg was in 1939. The result of this theoretical seduction is to tie Western thought leaders into an interminable debate about the nature and character of war and a search for a symmetrical uh, counter to hybridity. The threat of neophilia is uh, not merely restricted to the theoretical, although the addition of cyber and space to the traditional domains of war, land, sea, and air, significantly predates the concept of uh, multi-domain ops. The added domains undermine the concept by fundamentally misunderstanding the term domain of war, the effect of which is to erroneously conflate effect with enablement. Going back to Clausewitz, he defines war in terms of uh, politics and violence. 
A domain of war is a physical environment in which violence can take place. Cyber and space, therefore, cannot be currently so defined. Cyber and space, and indeed human thought, which some commentators see as a sixth domain, are in fact enablers of the three traditional domains. Information, howsoever it is delivered, is merely in support of those original domains. That this theory and its effects are directly attributable to presentism is demonstrated by a comparison with historic military activity in the electromagnetic spectrum. Radio waves have been used by militaries to transmit information for over 100 years. But despite its centrality to command and control, akin to cyber and space, radio was never defined as a domain of war. It is only in the era of satellite-enabled precision that information has been misrepresented as a domain of war. In terms of practical effects, defining information enablers as domains acts to stovepipe each enabler and the funding which accompanies it into the purview of a single service. In the British military, this is exemplified by the ownership of space by the Royal Air Force. While it is not suggested the RAF completely excludes the other services, the RAF's budget demands will probably privilege its own interests. This model is similar to that in the United States where the nascent Space Force will be subordinate to the Air Force. Ultimately, the cult of neophilia is a symptom of intellectual laziness, a trope built on simplistic memes and a mistake of conflating disconnected occurrences. In defense terms, those who promote uh, ideas like hybrid warfare and non-physical domains are boxing at shadows. In danger of creating a substantial threat where there is none, a digital blitzkrieg. The current age is far less unique than acolytes of presentism would have us believe. Practitioners and academics should therefore be wary of easy explanations and attractive narratives, instead concentrating on countering threats while understanding our adversary's asymmetric answer to the West conventional dominance comes from a place of weakness. Precision-enabled combined arms warfare, despite its dependence on vulnerable networked information, is still the key to success in war. The debate over the changing character or nature of war has been open for at least 30 years. It stems from the mistaken belief that the Clausewitzian definition of war is no longer fit for purpose, that times have changed, that developments have left the great Prussian's words obsolescent. Clausewitz's definition holds that war is organized political violence between states. Criticism of that uh, Napoleonic era expression traditionally concentrates on the emphasis on the nation-state system, notably by uh, academics like Mary Caldor. But more recently, there has been debate over whether violence is necessary for an act to be defined as war. Both arguments are equally presentist, removing the context of history and concentrating on the observed present. Warring and whoring are humanity's oldest professions. War's nature, uh, organized violence between rival political entities, like the other, is immutable. It is clearly insufficient to decry an opinion without offering evidence. So in this instance, I'll offer two other ancient human activities, which provide useful analogies, I think. Agriculture and medicine have existed for at least as long as war. Their natures are clear. The nature of agriculture is the management of animals and the environment to provide food and resources. The nature of medicine is to heal the sick and to save life. Much has changed in the character, 
uh, of both activities over the last 10,000 years. In farming, metallurgy, mechanization, chemical fertilizers, genetic alteration have all altered the way that agriculture is conducted. In medicine, drugs, surgical techniques, sensing equipment, and the computer chip have had similar evolutionary effects. But critically, however, for all the changes to the character of both, their nature remains completely unchanged. So too, the nature of war. Any argument based purely on the observation of the now fails this test of empiricism. So we now move on to future war. So while the West paradigm of war, maneuverism built on precision, is neither impotent nor redundant, on the contrary, in many ways, it is an exquisite expression uh, of lethality and peerless in effect. But while it might be right for the modern battlefield, it is not right for right now. It's becoming increasingly apparent that politicians are unwilling to commit to the application of direct military force, particularly on land, that that aversion is evidenced by a reticence to spend money on defense when faced with competing policy priorities and strategic choices. We take the UK as an example. It's notable that politicians are unmoved by the demands of their militaries for new equipment or indeed expressions of the utility of land forces at all. As a result, the British Army is facing an existential crisis in which it is constantly trying to prove its relevance to its political masters. Concepts such as using training as a proxy for warfare, surrogate warfare, and even the developing um, army operating concept are designed to demonstrate that the army remains an important element of defense and security. Fundamentally, however, Although threatened by a military agnostic political class, perhaps the main threat to an effective military comes from attempts to remain relevant within the current paradigm, rather than exploring opportunities inherent in the changing character of war. Last autumn at the British Army's conference on the future of NATO, it was highlighted that modernization and readiness are the organization's priorities in facing a return to a multipolar world. On the face of it, this might seem a reasonable proposition to face down a resurgent Russia and the, growing, and the growth of China as a global force by doubling down on the West's perceived advantages. But modernization merely reinforces the current paradigm of war and readiness makes the West ready for the conventional attack it, ex it expects, but which recent experience teaches us is highly unlikely. Both positions are severely flawed. First, because as previously stated, Modernization does not involve transforming in reaction to observed change, but rather by pouring new wine into old bottles. Secondly, as the Israeli author Mayor Finkel points out in his book on flexibility, recent observation of development of warfare suggests that increasingly wars begin either with a technological or doctrinal shock against which no amount of intelligence-based preparation can be effective. Modernization and readiness, which seemingly logical are for different reasons, a fool's errand. So if politicians are uh, averse to military spending because they cannot see the utility of armed force and, the military, and military leaders are so wedded to the current paradigm that they cannot or will not see the signs of the changing character of war, fair, sorry, what hope is there for the future of defense and particularly ground forces? Will they become little more than the gendarmerie as cuts, uh, budget cuts slowly remove their lethality? Will they be forced to concentrate on providing training and special forces to friendly states in unstable regions? Is there a way to change the way in which Western forces are configured without losing the lethality of precision-enabled combined 
arms warfare? The answer is, of course, yes. But to achieve it will take money and effort, both physical and intellectual. The key is a combination of the maintenance of conventional maneuverist forces, the, the introduction of an information maneuver capability and an integration of that, and a cultural concentration on adaptability, a broadening of combined arms warfare to make it more agile. The former two will deliver a force which can provide an answer to pre-existing conventional and hybrid threats, while the latter enhances the ability to identify patterns of change and find solutions. The only restraint is finance, and that's a mighty big restraint. Whilst transforming the force to provide both kinetic and virtual effect is being tested and practiced by the US and the British Army, we are almost wholly without an effective understanding of the concept of adaptability. Adaptability is a human factor which can be both enabled and exploited. It's enabled by experience, encouragement, empowerment, and exploited by experimentation, engagement, and encouragement, and is probably worthy of a talk all of its own. It's important to differentiate adaptability from flexibility. Flexibility is the capacity of an organization to change in reaction to internal and external stimuli. For those of us who work within Western militaries, there can be little doubt that our organizations are hopelessly inflexible, in peacetime at least. If one considers that contracts and personnel costs account for the vast majority of any defense budget and are, and are essentially fixed costs, and that the organizations and cultures they serve are often hundreds of years old and glacial in their capacity to evolve, perhaps organizational flexibility, inflexibility is inevitable. Only adaptable people will be able to react to the changing character of warfare. They are, after all, any military's greatest assets. In conclusion, taking all these facts into account, it's unlikely that the gray space will evaporate in the short term. Western militaries will continue to invest in systems which provide conventional superiority. Western societies will continue to operate in a dangerously unsustainable way. And Western governments will remain extremely risk averse. In light of this, Western militaries developing concepts for contesting the gray space, notice the US and the British Army. These programs aim to take a whole of government approach, the British call it fusion doctrine, to use virtual and physical effects to create multiple dilemmas for the enemy, throwing him off balance and effectively defeating his will by preemption, dislocation, and disruption. In other words, by adapting the maneuverist approach to the 20th century, 21st century. Logically, these approaches make sense. Continuing investment and training in the conventional warfare paradigm ensures the West's opponents must operate in the gray space. Given political distaste for kinetic action, the military's only course of action is to learn to defend the national interest in that space. But this is more problematic than may be apparent. First, if the military's role is to fight in the Clausewitzian sense, should it be operating in the space more properly in the realm of diplomacy, espionage, and political maneuver? Secondly, and this is more controversial, if the character of warfare has changed, should Western militaries invest less in the wholly un unlikely paradigm of conventional warfare and instead use the money to contest the gray space? It's my belief that the solution lies in maintaining a military superiority whilst closing down the gray space rather than competing in it. 
but this can only be achieved by being prepared to take military action earlier and more aggressively, and what is more, being prepared to message that offensive intent persistently. Is traditional warfare obsolete? No, but we must absorb information weapons into the wider combined arms if we are to exploit the opportunities of the 21st century. Thank you for listening. The Wavel Room is free to use, but it's not free to produce. So head down to wavelroom.com and maybe donate us some money so that we can keep going and keep creating that content that we know you love. Thank you.